Good afternoon. I'm talking to um, Barry Mayer here from Mayer's Rist in um, De Rist in uh, near Oudtshoorn. Um, Barry, you've done our regenerative agriculture and that for quite a while. Um, you've got a fascinating story. If you can just give us a bit of your context. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here this afternoon. I think we've had an excellent day and a half on the farm with you looking around. And um, I really appreciate that you enjoyed it. And I really like some of the inputs I got from you. I mean, you're a world of knowledge. And I so appreciate that you're actually making this video to help other farmers move away from conventional farming into regenerative farming, which not only is good for the environment, but I think is good for each of our pockets as well. I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to save money. Um, I grew up on a sugarcane farm in Zululand and ended up here in Oatsburn in the military and then went overseas for a very long time and was always in love with this area and bought this farm. And it's a beautiful farm lay in the hills here. And um, the problem was with the farm for me is I could not get the soil to take water. And I think coming from where I come, I looked at chemicals that I could add to the soils to make them more porosity in the soils and it really just didn't uh, and at the time um, looking at that I came across um, Ray Archuleta being interviewed by Buzz Clute while they were standing in a hole and explaining about how roots work and things like that and how deep roots go and I think Ray just really resonated with me he just seemed like such a nice man and he worked for the um, Conservation Corps, which is part of the USDA. And I thought, hell, you know, I mean, this guy really has a story to tell, you know, and there's a different way of skinning this cat. And that got me onto Gabe Brown. And I think, as you know, he's a very dynamic speaker. And then I got into listening to some of the stuff of Joel Saladin, which is a, a little bit of a different take on it but still very interesting to me. And um, I think then I listened to him, some other stuff from Buzz Clute, and I thought, hell, you know, this guy's South African, which at the time I didn't realize. And I think as you start doing this stuff, then you start learning about cover crops and how this can impact the soil. And then of course I came across this amazing lady um, called Elaine Ingham. And I think Elaine had a massive impact on me. I mean, she really, explained why it's important to have bacteria in the soil. And from that, I realized that, hey, you know, there are basically four principles to make agriculture work, okay? The first one is you really need to absolutely minimize the soil disturbance, and you should preferably not apply any chemicals to your soils, okay? There's really no need for us if we farm with nature to add chemicals to our soil. The second one is, of course, we need to have cover on the ground at all times, and there should be greenery on top of the ground. And the third one is, we always should have a, a mixed crop. We should no, have no monocultures. Monocultures are just not conducive to a natural way of farming where nowhere in nature do you go and find um, a monoculture. And then fourthly is um, you need to have animals incorporated into your farming. Um, 
in order the animals are walking biodigesters in the name of uh, in in cattle and these cattle basically leave bacteria on the soil which just really um, mimics what basically happened in the old days when we had huge herds of wild animals walking across Africa and not coming back for some time. I mean, we still have that on the Serengeti where we have these huge migrations. And it's very important that our fields get a rest and then are heavily grazed and then they get a rest again to rejuvenate themselves. And that's what we're trying to mimic on my farm. And it has worked really well for me. Um, one of my major constraints is for the last seven years, we've had a significant drought. Um, our average rainfall here is about 380 millimeters. This year, we've actually done really well. We've had 300 millimeters this year. Last year, we had 286. The year before that, I can't quite remember the number, but it was significantly lower and we could hardly farm. I mean, we've really had to reduce our livestock numbers down to where I have about 65 um, mothers, uh, female cows, and then I have all their calves at the moment. So we're over, we're right at about 120 animals. And um, it, it seems to be working for us very well. Um, the farm has changed very much. There's a lot of greenery around and obviously if we can get to a situation where we can come up with another 100 millimeters, it would just really make a huge difference for us. Just to, um, on your context, where you are actually, um, is the mountainous terrain and that, and that how dry it actually is. This farm used to be an ostrich farm, am I correct? It was, yes. Yeah. And I mean, that is degraded soil. So that is what you've built up. What was your, that was your starting block. Yes. And I, I, um, I guess I, I found inspiration from um, Walter Jenna. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that somewhere you'll explain who he is. And he calls it pedogenesis, uh, the building of topsoil, which I've actually looked up in the dictionary. The word doesn't seem to exist. So I don't know if Walter made that up somewhere, but I love the word. And that's really what I'm doing on my farm. I'm building topsoil. Mm. And um, it's essential. The one thing that all farmers have in common is topsoil. And um, there are significant studies that have been peer reviewed that show that we lose about um, one millimeter of topsoil per year if we are doing conventional farming. And if we go back historically, we know that the Fertile Crescent was a very rich area with high rainfall and amazing farming. But the plow, of course, caused a lot of disturbance. And um, over the years, basically that civilization lasted till the topsoil was gone. And um, David Montgomery actually writes in a book, he wrote a book, Dirt, where he writes about the um, ancient, the, I think it's the Romans, the Mesopotamians, um, where they, the, the Inca, I think, are part of it, where the empires collapsed because of the loss of topsoil. Exactly. I mean, and one of the ones that I've always wondered about was the Anastasi Indians in northern New Mexico, where I have gone to where they lived, and there are kilometers and kilometers of canals, but no water. Mm. So what actually happened? And my personal feeling is that in these instances, a lot of it has to do, you have an agrarian society, and then you have bare soil, 
and then once you have bare soil you have drought and then they convert to animal husbandry and then animal husbandry does the rest of it and it really turns it into a desert and it really i think a lot of our problems with climate change actually have to do with overgrazing and not giving the land enough time to rejuvenate itself so the crux of the matter here is we have to somehow rehydrate the soils and once we can rehydrate the soils i believe that that'll bring back rain just on your topsoil quote we lose three and a half tons of topsoil for every ton of maize we produce in south africa that is that is our i think that's an official that's the i think that's even peer reviewed i mean i if you look at that number it's really a frightening number yes I mean, I mean, how long are we going to be able to sustain this? Mm. But there is a solution, and the solution is regenerative agriculture. I mean, if you took those maize fields and you planted cover crops amongst the maize, I mean, it just has to stop. Mm. I mean, we have to change the way we, we are farming, and we have to look more towards nature in how we farm. And I, and I don't know how to put that more succinctly. You've done quite a bit of work. Um, you also had cl uh, canals on this farm and that, that you, with the, your whole program of re, um, hard, what's it, re rehydrating. rehydrating your farm and that. Do you want to go a bit into that as well? Okay, of course, yes. So we've obviously had a terrible drought, okay. And the option was there to start drilling holes in the ground, okay for borehole water but I really um, I'm not really sure that I want to do that it, I have some discomfort with actually drilling holes and taking water from from below the surface especially when I consider the, the kind of rainstorms we've been having is that we have in the last you know 10 years had several rainstorms that were more than a hundred millimeters in a couple hours and there's more water that runs off my farm during a rainstorm than what I probably consume in a whole year. Okay, and if you think about that in perspective, it's a little bit frightening. So all over the farm, the old people had canals. I mean, that basically captured water that came off the mountain and led it into dams. Okay, so what I'm doing is I'm going back into those canals and I'm digging them out, okay, in order to capture more water, okay. So when water falls on my farm, I want more of that water to stay on my farm, okay, um, in terms of, and what I found with these canals, because they're very, very flat, is the water will sit in them and within three or four days, the water will be percolating out the bottom of the canal onto the ground as pure clean water and then just sinking into the ground. I need to have more of that. That is, that, that is I think, my next step in order to, um, to improve the quality of my farm um, is we need to control surface runoff. And that fits in quite well with, I think, the designs of key line farming. And I, and I think that is a subject that um, they do believe in some plowing, um, ripping, and I'm a little uncomfortable with that. But I don't have an issue at all with um, 
making some canals and letting the water stay and sink in. One of the advantages, of course, that I don't think that we've discussed here right now is that if you are regeneratively farming, for every kilogram of carbon that you can put in the soil, your soil will hold seven kilograms of water. Mm. Okay. So already I can tell you that when we have storms, is the holding capacity of the fields that are being farmed regeneratively is so enormous that that has made a huge change. Is in the beginning here, when I started this, if I had five millimeters of rain, three of it ran off. Yeah. When did you start? What year did you actually so, start? Um, I've been at this now for six years. So this is my sixth year. So, so you actually started in the, in, in the drought. <laughs> yes, there was a real motivation to try and find something that works better than what I was doing. And I think for the first three years I was on the, or four years I was on the farm, we had so much rain that I couldn't use all the water. It was actually running off the farm. Mm. And then uh, about seven, eight years ago, we started, we had a, in 2014 is actually the exact year, we had um, a massive flood that year. We had a flood through the port. We had 100 millimeters of rain in, a, in the 13th and 14th of July, excuse me, 13th and 14th of January. And then it just stopped raining. And ever since, we've really not had much rain. Um, we've had no events that have given us more than 30 millimeters of rain. Since 2014? Yes, yeah. So that's scary. It's frightening, it's yeah. beyond scary. It's actually really frightening, actually. How many hectares do you then you started? I mean, you're doing cover crops and you're doing pasture, um, planted pasture for your cattle. Yes, I do. How many hectares have you got currently? Um, I've got about 25 hectares that are under irrigation and under pasture at the moment. Yeah. How long are you, do your cattle do they go onto felt or natural felt grazing as well? Um, last year we did for about a month. I basically just had to sacrifice. Um, we had in. February, March last year, we had a time when we just did not have enough rain or there wasn't enough water to keep the pastures um, wet. Right. So I just put the cattle on the felt, but because the felt hadn't really been grazed, I think that month that I had them all did very little damage. Um, I didn't, it, it's, it's a really hard decision. I think a lot of farmers face this decision is that when you start having a drought, do I keep my animals? or sell them and it rains next week. And so instead of having that argument with myself, I said, okay, these animals will be okay on the felt for a month. Mm. But if this month goes by and I don't see any improvement, then I need to sell animals. And fortunately, you know, within 10 days it started raining. So, but the animals were so fat on the felt that I thought, hell, I'm just gonna leave them there for another 20 days. You had a fire here in 2016, Yes, 2016, we had a fire. It started on the 15th of December, and it was out on the 23rd of December. Um, it burned from uh, close to the Kango Caves, and it burned all the way over to Prince Albert, then to Klarstrom, and back over to my farm. And unfortunately, the day that it was, we, that it was, we sort of had it out, we had this massive windstorm, and 
it just, we couldn't stop the fire. I mean, my wife actually saved this little house that we're sitting in right now. She loaded all the furniture that's in this building right now on one pickup truck load. And when she had to bring it back up, she brought it back up on four pickup truck loads. <laughs> <laughs> and then she climbed on the roof with a hose and decided she's not gonna lose this building. And she literally, she did save this building. So yeah, it was quite an, it, it, it is, a feeling that I cannot really um, explain to anybody. And so these farmers who've had these massive fires here the last couple of weeks, I have no idea how they feel. I mean, I, I just, it's something that's undescribable. Yeah, it's devastating. It is totally, yeah. And unfortunately, then we didn't, haven't really had rain. And so a lot of the felt hasn't grown back. But finally this year, we're seeing some improvement. And we're seeing that the water holding capacity of the mountain is coming back a little bit. So we have quite a bit more water this year than last year, and just because of the water holding capacity of the mountain. Just to put it into context again, you, just, uh, because just to repeat it, you farm on 25 hectares, you farm 65 animals. Yes. 365 days a year. I do, yes. Because I, mean, I think that is, that's quite phenomenal actually. Yeah. That people don't realize, and I mean, your animals aren't thin. Yeah. They all in calf, or they all have a calf next to them yes. as well. And I mean, uh, so I mean, it's, it's it's quite an achievement. Yeah, but it can be done, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's no, just, fair enough. Yeah, and I think so. So that's where I mean, I I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but that's where we start talking about a pasture that's not a monoculture. Okay, and that's where I mean. Uh, Christine Jones, Jones comes in. I mean, I, I think anybody who farms should should go and listen to Christine Jones. I mean, she, she's made such an amazing contribution here where she's talking about you need to have at least 14 species of plants in your pasture. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. They've changed that again to four. Okay. That you actually just need the four classes. Okay, four classes. Four okay. classes, yeah. Um, okay. Um, but it's, but which is interesting because I think the, um, I mean, if you speak to the cover crop guys, where they often say, don't, um, it's all fine and well planting 14 species, but not all of them come up. Or you can't just put 14 grasses down. Right. You've got to actually have the four classes of um, your legumes, grasses, brassicas, um, and I always forget the fourth one. But anyway, it doesn't yeah. actually matter. But, okay, um, grasses, brassicas, and legumes, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we plant those classes, and then I have a mixture of each one, okay? So in my grasses in the winter, I like ryegrass, and I plant a little bit of both tetraploid and diplodoid, okay? And then I plant um, tetracale, uh, barley, and oats, and I really actually like um, cereal rye because it grows quite tall, mm. and um, it, it makes... and. It's not important that everything doesn't come up, okay? There's a little bit of everything growing. I mean, in, the, in my brassicas, I plant um, Japanese radishes, Austrian radish, Austrian, um, uh, excuse Australian radish, the, the purple top, and I plant um, kale, and, and that stuff, it doesn't, and, and white mustard. And there's always a little bit of it around. It's mm. quite amazing. There's not huge amounts of it, so it's, it's dispersed, and, I, as a farmer, cannot that easily quantify um, how well it's working, but I have to tell you that when I look at my cows, I like the result. And whether I plant 
four species or 14 species. It doesn't actually cost that. The cost difference yeah, the is, cost is yeah. because I basically end up mixing it all together in any case. Mm. You've got a fascinating, and um, I'm going to come to your compost thing and your seed treatment before you actually plant, if you want to go into that, because I think that's, Elaine talks a lot about it a lot. Um, but if you can talk about your compost system and also your seed treatment and that before you actually do plant. Yes, so Elaine, Ingham says that we can grow um, ryegrass that is 1.2 meters tall without it going to seed, okay? That would be quite an achievement, okay? That's the kind of stuff as a farmer that you dream of, okay? Because, I mean, my ryegrass doesn't probably get more than about um, 12 inches on my farm, which is 30 centimeters. And um, so Elaine, unfortunately, is a very complex person um, in terms of um, when you try and get information from her, you know, when I read her stuff, I get what she's saying, but I found that there was that that David Johnson and his wife Sue, David and Sue Johnson, and he, they're they're much more, their videos are more approachable, and I would really recommend anybody watch these. He explains why it works and how it works. So he designed a composting system. Um, and he was a fellow, I think, at the um, New Mexico State University, and he's now at Chico State in California. And David basically was making compost the conventional way, and his wife got tired of washing his clothes, and he came up with a different system. And it basically is a small system, and it makes enough for about 230 hectares uh, of of composting for on about 230 30 hectares. And it's a very simple system where you basically take mesh and you put compost in it and there are pipes and you remove the pipes. And once it's gone through the thermophilic stage, you add worms to it and you let it sit for a year. And it has bacteria in it, but it becomes functionally dominant, okay? So, what you're, so then what I do with that material is I take for every 50 kilograms of seed that I plant, I take 10 liters of compost. I add hot milk to it and a tablespoon of um, molasses. And then I actually mix my seed, my 50 kilograms of seed in that, okay? And then I take that whole batch that I've all mixed up now and I put it in my planter and I plant this wet stuff and I mean my logic said to me this is never going to work but actually it just flows beautifully mm. and I do generally have an employee stand on the back and just make sure that it is feeding uh, in case it bridges but I mean we very seldom have a problem with it bridging um, we don't use an air seeder uh, I should say that we use a free flow seeder um, and of course I mean, we don't have that much hectare so I really don't justify such a large seeder yes. and then um, it has it creates a situation, according to David, where this compost around this moisture and bacteria around the seed tells the seed, listen, you're in a great environment here. You need to germinate. Mm. And I just think when I look at my ground that we're getting amazing germination. We're only planting about 25 to 30 kilograms of seed every time we plant. Yet we're getting huge amounts of, and basically, um, if I exclude the the um, the teff we're planting about um, 
10 to 12 million seeds per hectare. I mean, that's a lot of seed if you really think about it. And I, and I think that's one of these we really need to consider is how much are we planting? Um, we should probably be even cutting down a little bit on that seed count. And I think you can if you're using a good quality compost like that, you know, that's recommended by David and Sue Johnson. And it's such a simple system to build. It doesn't cost hardly anything. And there's so little maintenance of it. You give it a minute of water every day and... You also, you don't use any inorganic fertilizer? No, do um, no, I don't at all. Um, I just, I just don't see the need. And if I look at, um, you obviously want to talk a little bit about fruit look here. When I look at um, my fruit look results, I don't actually see any need for that. And if I look at the cows, I also don't see a need to add phosphates and things like that because I think that if you can reestablish the fungi under the ground, that they will in fact bring the phosphates into the plants, and um, you will, which is a basic building block, of course, for healthy animals. And I think my animals are very healthy, mm. and I just don't see the need. And of course, I see that in the last month. Um, Nitrogen has gone from um, yeah, I mean, I almost a forty percent increase yeah. in price. The phosphates, as far as I know, the phosphates all the energy cost in Europe or in, um, in international energy costs are just they aren't stripping the the value of the uh, of the inorganic fertilizers. It's just becoming too expensive. Yeah, and and I think that the manufacturing it, of it exactly. I mean, it takes so much energy to make nitrogen that. Um, why don't we just use the plants to make nitrogen with us and give them the bacteria and the fungi? And I think even we can meet the demands of a yield in terms of a good yield in maize possibly by doing this. I mean, there are farmers who are doing it. And even in the beginning, if you have to sacrifice some yield, just the cost benefit will probably outweigh. Mm. Um, and, and I'm hoping that the... the the way we are farming right now, farmers will realize this is just becoming too expensive to farm the way. We need to turn back to nature a little bit. Mm. I mean, that's what the salt series is about. Yeah. To I, a certain I, extent, yeah. I mean, it's, I think when you farm this way and you're not using chemicals, I think every day you think about um, what am I going to be keeping alive today? It's not what I'm going to kill every day. Mm. And I, that's not my own quilt. I mean, that's actually from Gabe Brown. He says, when I used to farm conventionally, I'd get up every day, what am I going to kill today? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting, and, it, and you've said it now quite often, is the yield. And it's, it's not necessarily about the yield. It's about the profit that they make. Exactly. And it's the input costs. And that's just a fact on farming internationally as well. The input costs have doubled and the profit margins have halved. So we have to look at alternatives because that trend isn't going to stop with conventional agriculture. So, I mean, today we're probably looking at, at a cost of chemicals at close to 50 to 55% mm. of your gross profit. And I just think that can't be good. It just in increases your risk. Yeah, and I mean, you're always, you're always having to pay somebody. Mm. You touched a little bit on, on fruit look. The, the program. Um, can you actually just explain that a bit? Yes, um, it's a program that the um, Western Cape government is paying for, okay, and 
It's an amazing program. It's for free to the farmers of the Western Cape. And every seven days, they have a company that flies a satellite over the Western Cape and, and basically photographs all the farms with some system um, that I think it's infrared. And then they, from that, they can do certain anal analytical things that help the farmer. And in my case, is I can see on my farm exactly how much biomass increased that week, how much evaporation there was. So I can actually schedule my grazing according to it. I can actually schedule my irrigation according to it. And there are also leaf indexes that you can use. And it has the ability to tell me how much nitrogen is in the top of my plant and in the whole plant. And this program is, is field specific and the pixel area is about a 10 meter by 10 meter. So this is an absolutely incredible tool that I think each farmer in the Western Cape should use on their farms, whether you are running pastures or grapes. And at the moment there are about 300 users, but we'd really like to see more people using it because it's an amazing program. And, um, it just can make such a difference. I mean, I schedule all my irrigation based on that, and it is totally approved when you get audited, when they look at your irrigation, that it's an approved system for you to do your, your irrigation based on that. Just about in regarding to the context as well, and I think what, that's what some people, um, if they don't know where Otsurung or Darist is, and that, that you're in the Karoo. I'm in the Klein Karoo. In the Klein Karoo, but yeah, still, yeah. but it's... I mean, it's, it's, what is it, semi-arid? Yes, we semi-arid, and we, of course, are in a winter rainfall area. But more and more, we're seeing that we're actually getting a bit of rain between November and January as well. Um, I don't think that that was traditionally that way. A thousand years ago, maybe it was that way, but not in our lifetimes. It's not really been that way. But that makes a big difference at the moment. Last year, that made a huge difference to me. Mm. Have you got a 10-year running average on your rainfall? I actually have more than that, yes. Okay, and? It's about 380 millimeters a year. Is it getting average. less? Much, much less, yes. Is it? Yeah, and we're actually looking potentially, if you look at some of the statistics and predictions, that we're going to have another 30% less rainfall in the next 30 years. When I was here in the military, I used to go visit in Van Veeksdorp, and there were lots of little pastures and little farms with a little bit of lucerne and sheep and things like that, and people were making a good living. But by the time I bought my farm, there was nothing happening there. I mean, it's all gone. And then when I actually came to live here in 2010, 11, um, suddenly there was no farming really going on between Oatsworn and Dorp. I mean, it was just becoming an arid desert. And the frightening thing is in the last seven years, that drought has brought the desert right here to Durist. Mm. I mean, if you drive from here to Oatsworn, there are just very few places that actually produce crops in the last seven years. It's a bit frightening, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. But it's, it is, and it's, I mean, it's, I think that's where regenerative agriculture really does come in, is how do we, and it's, you say, you've said it earlier on already, where it really has to do with your carbon. We have to increase the carbon in our soil 
um, and the carbon that we put in through um, what's it photosynthesis yes. and sequestra uh, carbon sequestration through the living root is which it's it's a much uh, the bacteria bind it much for much longer than compost does compost burns again exactly so so the compost for me is just a carrier for putting bacteria in mm. the soil so what happens is that the plant takes takes the, car the the carbon from the oxygen and spins the oxygen off and then um, puts that in the ground okay mm. and the bacteria consume that carbon and they also trade it off yes. to the fungi and the fungi of course trade back um, phosphates um, to the to the bacteria which is to the benefit of the plant yeah, and I mean, so there's this major yeah. symbiotic relationship under mm. there the question is how do we rehydrate the klenkarua and that I think is a bit more complex of a question at least I have some rainfall and what regenerative agriculture has done for me is it's made the rain go much further mm. but it's that is and I think that is what it's about is to make the rain go further yes and not only here it's 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 across Africa exactly it's not it's not only here it's I mean yeah we have to make the if the rainwater runs off your farm it's got no use to you and it's interesting one of the great motivators to me is John Liu is that how you say his name John Liu yeah uh, John, Liu. John Liu. Liu yeah and that's where you and I met at speed mm. and he was the video that he made of this the loose plateau in China that was I mean converted from a desert back to a green area mm. all had to do with stopping the runoff of water yes from the I mean, there's, a, there's a saying what we owe our, <coughs> regardless of your accomplishments we owe our existence to six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains exactly and that is what it's about so yes. we have to look after our topsoil and we have to look after our, our um, that the water actually gets in and what the people don't understand I think as well to a big extent is that most biological sim, um, signaling and that actually happens in topsoil it's our biggest living organism yes it or, is or, uh, system and uh, for too long we've actually looked at the chemistry and not at the biology we have to go back to the biology exactly yeah and so, so and that's what they did on the loose plateau and yes. I, I would really recommend anybody um, please watch the video yes. on the loose plateau it makes such an impact and it it's sort of the digging of the canals that I'm doing on the farm actually has a little bit to do with that yes. in that I've realized that when I watch those videos that you need to keep the water on your farm and reestablish on the mountainsides have trees grow back mm. have more trees in my fields there's nothing wrong with having you just plant around them yeah you just got to make sure that you plant them in such a way that you can plant around them that's all mm. I think that's what makes permaculture and so interesting as well is how do you and how they build their canals to actually zigzag on the contour line the water so that the water really runs off as slowly as possible off the land off your land especially being in the mountains as I am I think that is a very very important thing and after the fire I mean we've had a lot more runoff than ever before mm. So this isn't that that slow release that you get out of the mountain. So, I mean, this is going to be my first summer with the canals. 
So we'll see what they do this year. Um, and my hope is that they will really help rehydrate the soils and start having the streams flow again. I mean, the streams haven't flown on my farm for since the 1940s. Yeah. And that's, that's terrible. Because I know that my neighbor used to have an eight hour labiat out of the stream that flows past this little house a week uh, in the 1940s, but he hasn't used it since the 1948, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah it is frightening. Yeah, I mean, so, so there's a lot of change going on. And I mean, and obviously, I, I think that a lot of the change that is happening is nature itself, okay? But one has to acknowledge that we have increased the amount of carbon in the atmosphere in the last 40 years. I mean, at an enormous rate. I mean, when President Carter went to the, um, the Scripps Institute in San Diego and say, oh, you know, this increase that Keaton's talk, Keeling, Keaton is his name? Keeling, Keeling, is talking about from 280 parts per million. What is the impact going to be to the United States? You know, they came back and they said, well, there is going to be an impact. And that was the beginning of the IPCC. But they also talked about another thing, and John Liu talks about it very well as well, is that there's an enormous amount of, um, uh, of um, vapor that's caught up in the atmosphere. And that vapor has dust in it. And that's why it's not raining. And it acts like a huge blanket. And it's very hard to quantify that. But that is also a major, major effect in global warming is this major vapor blanket that we have sitting mm. there. And um, the way to address that is to rejuvenate our soils. And in the end, that's what this whole process is about, is rejuvenating our soils and bringing moisture back into our soils and making our lives better. I always like to quote somebody who says, heal the soil, heal the people. Mm. You've got, um, you've got cottages on your farm in that as well, if someone wants to come and visit you. Yes, um, my wife runs cottages on the farm and it has really sustained us through this drought and um, COVID has done some damage, but not nearly as much. Our location is very good. And um, that's how we really make a living um, a lot of the time. I mean, it, pre it represents about 50% of our income on the farm. And um, it also allows me a little bit of extra money to do other things with on the farm, improve the farm. And um, yeah, we love having people here. And uh, a lot of people come here as strangers and leave as friends. And um, it's a magical place to come and stay. Yeah, I mean, if you really want peace and quiet, you come here. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. This is Mrs. Yamnek's house, this, and um, she raised uh, 12 children in this home, and she's buried just the other side of a thorn tree here. And um, she does apparently every now and then come and visit. Um, I've never met her personally, but uh, some people have, and uh, they have feelings. Probably have presence. a guilty conscience more than anything else <laughs> yeah, that, they, you know, and, that uh, they hear her. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a very magical place, and uh, we have more modern cottages down at the bottom. Barry, I really want to thank you to give your time to chat to us, to actually t well, talk about yourself and also 
what you do in that. And I really hope that we can have an impact on some people in the regards what you actually do here. Yeah, I, I think that um, if you want to improve your life, I think this is a beginning to change. I think it's very hard for people to change, but I think that uh, if we can just change one person's mind, then we've accomplished a lot. But I do see that um, the regenerative group in, Amer excuse me, in South Africa is growing very rapidly. Um, you've started this group on uh, Telegram, and I just see how many people are on that, an enormous amount of people. Mm. And there's some really positive feedback. So I think that unequivocally that regenerative agriculture is the future. Yeah, so do I. I mean, it's... Um and the next interview is actually on the we're doing with James Bluchnot and that we we're really going to talk about restoration pays, yes. and that and it um, um, he's a financial uh, what's it a financial economy uh, environmental economist yeah and um, very, that's also hopefully going to be very interesting yes yeah I can't wait to have a look at that mm. thank you so much for coming out here and uh, mm. it was really an honor to get some feedback from you. And I always say that this is a very lonely job being a mm. regenerative farmer. You can't just drive over to your neighbor. And so it's wonderful to be able to share this with somebody. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much for sharing it. Yeah. yeah thank you very yeah, much. Wonderful. Okay.